Welcome. Here at The Bridge Church, we exist to help you connect to God, grow with family, and serve our city. We hope today's message will allow you to grow deeper in your connection to God. Enjoy the message. How do we know that Christianity and the Bible haven't been changed? Are the stories exaggerated or true? How do we know the Bible is translated correctly? Who wrote the Bible? Can I actually believe the Bible's claims? The Bible. Y'all hear me? Excellent. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another installment of True Story, sermon series that is exploring truths about God and the church. This evening, we're going to be looking at the Bible and answering the tough questions that people pose as, man, can I really trust the authority of these scriptures? This topic is very close to my heart, and if you struggle with those questions about the Bible being true, there's a special type of compassion that I feel for you, because I too was in that space. I too questioned the Bible. And have you guys ever been wrong? Like maybe you're debating somebody and you say something with a lot of confidence and then like they Google it (laughs) and you find out you were wrong? Think about how you feel when you hear someone else say that same wrong statement. It's just like, oh, bruh, just, that's, that's, you feel it because you know it's not true. And you were there when it was proven to you that it wasn't true. And every time I hear somebody questioning the Bible's authority, That's how I feel. I remember when somebody Googled it for me and reminded me like, man, this thing is backed up. And that's what I want to walk with you guys through today. But five years ago, that wasn't always true for me. Five years ago, I said, hey, this Christianity stuff is not for me. And it's not just that it's not just for me. It's not for you or anybody else because it's not true at all. And I had a typical church upbringing. I grew up in the church. And I thought that, for the Bible tells me so, was a good enough backing for everything that we were doing. It was the deepest way that a Christian could explain everything in the Bible. And so if there were any issues in the text itself, then that would completely eradicate any claim that the Bible was true. But as I think back to those moments... No one had actually presented any kind of real evidence or proof why a person should believe any of those statements. All someone had to do one day was come up to me and say, you know the Bible's tainted, right? And that was all I needed. Just that one statement took me from Bible-believing Christian to outright atheist. Why? Why was it so easy for me to make that jump? It was easy because I wanted a way out. The whole time that I'm in church and we're singing songs and I'm listening to the preaching, you know, that came naturally to me. I could understand that. I could handle that. But when people started challenging me to live in a way according to what the Bible was saying, instant dilemma. How could I live and serve God, but also live the way I want to live? 
I didn't want to live according to the Bible. I wanted to live the life that I wanted to live. And every Sunday became a tug of war between me and God over who's going to be in control of my life. And then one day somebody came and said, you know, the Bible's tainted, right? And there it was, the back door, my way out. Oh, I could justify living my life according to the way that I wanted, because guess what? Bible ain't even true. See, it's not because I don't want the Bible. It's not because I wouldn't want to follow it. It's just that it's not true. Because, you know, the Bible's tainted, right? That was my foundation for a living according to my flesh. And if that's you this evening, and you've got a death grip on the fact that the Bible is not true, and you know that if for some way, somehow, somebody proved to you that the Bible is true, all of a sudden you'd be caught in a dilemma of your own. You'd be out of excuses as to why you don't follow him. Then allow this sermon to loosen your grip. We're going to be talking about three ways that the Bible is proven to be true. The Bible being true historically, the Bible being true culturally, and the Bible being true personally. Historically, culturally, personally. Let's start with historically. Let's look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. If you have your Bibles, uh, feel free to go to your apps or your old school text, or you can just look at the screen. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. All Scripture is breathed out by God. So who wrote the Bible? Well, God did. Well, what did he use to write it? Oh, he used people. Around 40 people to be exact, actually from all different walks of life, prophets, some tax collectors, doctors, all different kinds of people. And it was written across a span of around 14 to 1,500 years. And if you sum up the whole Bible into one word, it would be Jesus. If you look at John chapter 5, verse 39, it says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. The scriptures point to him. They point to Jesus. So in order to discredit the Bible, you want to discredit Jesus. So how do we know what is said about Jesus is accurate historically? Well, first off, the New Testament was written way too early for it to be made up. Let's look at Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. It says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. Luke is writing this book, and he starts off acknowledging that there are people at the very time of his writing that saw the stuff that he's talking about. People were around, and he's appealing to them, saying, hey, these people were eyewitnesses to what I'm writing about. Luke is writing this only about 30 or 40 years after the events in the book. But maybe you're not impressed. Maybe 30 or 40 years is not good enough for you. 
So let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's look at verses 3 through 6. It says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, buried on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. There were more than 500 brothers who saw Jesus after he resurrected. Yes, some have died, but most of them are still alive. And if you need proof, you could just go talk to them. Paul is writing this as early as 15 or 20 years after the life of Jesus on earth. That's not a long time. Think about it. 9-11 was just 15 years ago, and we all have very vivid memories of those events. Imagine having seen somebody come back from the dead. What I am pointing out here with all this is that the Bible is verifiably true. Christianity would never have gotten off the ground if the authors were claiming something to be true that wasn't because the people around could check it. Listen, let's say I am no more, and in 10 years, a book comes out about me. And in that book, it said that I had long-flowing dreadlocks. <laughs> that book needs to be questioned because that's not possible for me. You all are still here. You walked with me. You talked with me. You know I'm bald. <laughs> the accounts about Jesus and his claims that he was God, his death, his resurrection, were all written at a time when people could verify those facts. Not only are the Gospels verifiable, but the other thing is that they are written like historical documents. To claim that the Gospels were more poetic or legends or myths, written more so for entertainment than as a true account of history, is a huge mistake. If you look at other ancient texts that were poems and were legends, like the Iliad or Beowulf, they would never start like Luke chapter 1, where he's appealing to eyewitnesses. See, beginning in the 18th century, we get the modern book. So most of us, we take up a book, and it sounds like we're reading a story that happened in real life. That's actually a very modern concept. That actually started in the early 18th century. Before that, we never had a book where it was written in a way that we read it like it was a newspaper, like it's events that are going chronologically. C.S. Lewis put it best when he's talking about the Gospels. He said, I've been reading poems and romances and vision literature, legends, myths all my life. I know what they're like. I know that not one of them is like this, referring to the Bible. Of this text, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage, meaning it is historically accurate. It's like a report from a journalist. Or some unknown writer in the second century without known predecessors or successors, meaning no one before or after that person, suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern, novelistic, realistic narrative. The reader who doesn't see this has simply not learned to read. I love C.S. Lewis. He's always like jabs you at the end. So what he's saying is that because this technique is so modern, you're either saying that if you're going to claim that this is not a historical account, then you mean to tell me that they found a way to write stories like people in the 18th century 
while they're only in the second century. And speaking of ancient poems and stories, let's take a look at this chart. We go to school and we read books by all of these authors, and there is no question or caution as to the accuracy or authorship of these documents. But look at how it pales in comparison to the accuracy of the scriptures. Look at Plato, for example, over a thousand year difference in between the writing and the earliest copy that we have, over a thousand years. And look down at the New Testament, less than 100 years between the original and the copy. Even Homer's Iliad with 643 copies is nothing compared to the over 5,000 copies that we have of the New Testament. But that doesn't stop philosophers from quoting Plato and Socrates with full confidence. How much more so you, you the Christian, who should have confidence knowing that you have access to the most historically backed book in existence. No book has more historical evidence vouching for its claims than the Bible. You need to celebrate that. And for any of those archaeological students that happen to be in the building, yes, I know some of those manuscripts are missing some characters here and there. But with over 5,000 copies, we've been able to be fully confident that the scriptures are saying what we've copied down. Tell me if any of you would have any trouble imagining what this sentence says. A missing character here and there, and this is only four copies. Imagine 5,000. 5,000. The Bible is accurate. Feel fully confident that the Bible you've been reading or the Bible you've been avoiding <laughs> is accurate. It has stood the test of time and its message remains. The Bible is historically accurate. It's historically accurate, but can you trust it culturally? You know, it's funny because I came into this message thinking that that was going to be the big argument, right? People really had a lot of historical issues with the Bible. So I started to talk to some people, and I quickly realized that's not true, at least in Brooklyn. Most people aren't having issues with the historical data according, you know, that, you know, compared to what the Bible is saying. People really just have an issue with what it says. People don't like what the Bible says. Here's what I heard. I heard the Bible's sexist. I heard that the Bible preaches hate. I heard that the Bible's racist, which you know that's not true. Just go three sermons back. But I realized that people feel like the Bible just isn't relevant. Now, I can't go down a list of things that are in the Bible that offend people living in New York City. That's a very long list. But I would love to give you a toolkit that you can break out anytime you read something that seems offensive. First, consider that the text may not be teaching what you think it's teaching. So the people that I was talking to, and they were telling me all the issues they have with the Bible, the issue that came up the most was that they felt like the Bible was against women. The Bible is against women. And specifically, they looked at the book of Genesis. In Genesis, we see some ways that women were treated as second-class citizens. We see that most of these guys engaged in polygamy. They had multiple wives. 
and that women could be purchased as brides. That was the culture of the day. Well, a man named Robert Alter, he's a Jewish scholar at Berkeley, and his expertise is ancient Jewish literature. In his book, he says that there are two institutions that are in Genesis that are universal in ancient cultures. The first one is polygamy, and that's a husband having multiple wives. And the second one is something called primogeniture. That's just a fancy word that means the oldest son would get all the inheritance. He would get, he's basically the ruler of the whole family. The oldest son would receive all the money and all the power. Well, first of all, in Genesis, we see in every generation, polygamy actually wreaks havoc on the family. Socially, culturally, spiritually, emotionally, and psychologically, it is an absolute disaster in all of these stories. And second, when it comes to the oldest son inheriting everything from the father, we see something very interesting. Genesis, God favors the younger son over the older. Abel, not Cain. Isaac, not Ishmael. Jacob, not Esau. You begin to realize that the book of Genesis is actually subverting the culture, not supporting the culture. It's overturning the the ancient institutions at every turn. God is actually flipping the script on the culture. He's being counterculture counter to the male-dominated, polygamous, elder-son-driven culture. So I encourage you to reread the book of Genesis with this lens, and you'll see what God is actually doing in that book. And then it hit me. What if people were abandoning trust in the Bible because of the traditions in Genesis? What if they kicked the Bible and the Christian faith, missing out on a relationship with Jesus, all because they couldn't understand the text? The takeaway is simple. Be patient with the text, get help, have a mentor, seek out pastors, city group leaders. Consider the possibility that it might not be teaching what you think it's teaching. Also, consider that you may misinterpret what the Bible is teaching based on your own cultural beliefs. So treatment of women was a big one, but another issue that I heard a lot was about slavery. Well, you know, the Bible promotes slavery, and I'm black, so you know I can't rock with that. And if they promote slavery, who knows what else is wrong in that book? But the slavery that is referred to in the Bible is not the same slavery that we saw in this country. Actually, if you go back and you read the book of Philemon, look at chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. Paul is writing to Philemon, a slave owner, and talking to him about his slave, Onesimus, and he says... For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Paul is telling Philemon to see his slave as a brother. That's the slavery of the Bible. It's actually more like what you would call an indentured servant. In the text, the slavery being described is not race-based. If going by clothing alone, there's no way you could look out into a crowd and say that person is a slave. They were not segregated against, and many times they were more educated than their masters. They held managerial positions, and they made the same wages as free laborers and rarely poor. 
Very few were slaves for life, and most were free by their late 30s at the latest. So when you read slavery in the Bible, it's a lot less Kunta Kinte and a lot more like you Monday through Friday, 9 to 5. <laughs> Hashtag my job working me like a slave. But because of our own culture, we interpret the scriptures a particular way. When we see that word slavery, something happens in our heart. It's like, uh, that word. It, it means something to us here in America. But know that that's not the slavery that the Bible's referring to. Because of our own culture, we interpret the scriptures in a unique way, a way that many times is inaccurate. So be patient with the text. It may not be teaching what you think it's teaching. Watch out for cultural bias that may color how you see the Bible. And also remember that you examine the Bible from a very finite perspective. See, here in New York City, it's very easy for people to be cool with the parts of the Bible where it says, feed the poor, right? I am known, right? People rock with that. Forgive people, love people. They all love that part. But like... Marriage stuff, monogamy, no sex before marriage. They don't rock with those parts. To them, that's primitive. That's wrong. But what if we went to the Middle East? In the Middle East, it would be the very opposite. See, they would be fine with the monogamy and the heterosexual lifestyle, but they would never be shamed to the point of turning the other cheek. They would feel the need to defend themselves. Well, what about people who live in a caste system where you're born into your place in society? Why would the rich ever want to serve the poor? It would go right up against their cultural beliefs. It would make no sense to them. So when you examine the Bible culturally and you find something that offends you, what makes your culture any better than someone else's? Wait, so we should throw out the Bible because it goes against American culture? Let's go a bit further, though. See, if the Bible is actually from God and not from a person, right, it's not from any one person's culture, it would have to be different and then by definition contradict or go up against every other culture in at least some aspect. So when you read the Bible and there's something in there that offends you or it goes against your cultural standard, you have not found a reason to throw it away, but a reason to hold it close. Because only a word from God, only a holy culture can cut through every one of man's cultures. Amen. Only a holy culture. So yes, the Bible can be trusted culturally. And if it offends you, remember to consider what you took away from it when it may not be what it's actually saying. And if you're at our church, get with your city group leaders, ask questions, come to Soul Cafe, talk to one of your pastors about it. There are resources all around you. Remember to examine yourself and make sure that you're not bringing in your own cultural bias against what the Scripture is saying. You may be looking at the Bible with a broken lens. So the Bible is true from a historical perspective. And the Bible is true from a cultural perspective. But what about personally? Remember, that's how we started this whole conversation, right? I was talking about me, right, and how I shunned it at one point. I didn't know the Bible to be true personally. I wanted to be the God in my life, 
and any reason I could find not to believe the Bible was good enough for me. Because I just wanted a way out. I didn't want to change. I didn't want some book to dictate how I was supposed to live. How was that free? It felt like jail, a jail in this book. That's how I felt. Let's look at Luke chapter 24, verses 20 and 21. Jesus' followers are remembering the events of his death. And the chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. That's me. That's me. See, at some point, I had hope. I put hope in that book. I put hope in the Bible that Jesus was going to be something that was going to transform my life, that was going to change me for the better. But something happened. Somewhere along the way, the life that I wanted to have for myself and the life that God wanted to have for me started to look real different. See, Jesus wasn't playing ball. He wasn't giving me the life that I thought he was going to give me. Just like verse 21, but we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. But I had hoped he would be the one to make me successful. This is why many Jews today continue to wait on a Messiah. They miss Jesus because he did not live up to their expectation. But Jesus doesn't end the story there. If we keep reading, they come to the empty tomb, right? And the angels are there telling them, look, he's alive. Jesus has risen from the dead. If we look at verse 26 and 27, that same chapter, it says, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Everything in the Bible points to Jesus. It doesn't point to you. If the, see, if the Bible was just a book of things that you needed to get done so that you could be blessed and go to heaven, then you would never need a Savior to die for you. All you would need to know is what are the rules to live by. See, I was reading the Bible completely wrong. I was reading it like it was about me, like it was about what I needed to change, what I needed to do and what I didn't need to do, what I needed to say and what I should stop saying. And I missed it completely. The Bible must be read like it's all about Christ and what he has done for you. Let's look back at Luke chapter 24. Look further down in verse 32. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Did not our hearts burn? Like, remember Jesus, man? Remember when he used to open up the scriptures to us? Remember when he used to talk to us on the road? Our hearts burned. We had an incredible yearning. We had an onslaught of desire a burning passion to hear from the scriptures. That's the goal. 
The goal is to see this book not as an oppressive document, but as a love letter from the Almighty God. I want to be able to say that when I open his book, my heart burns for what it has to say. And you know what, side note, a lot of times people get caught up in, man, what version of the Bible am I supposed to read? You know, there's all these different versions, versions. You know what version of the Bible that people who make that argument to me read? No version, because they don't read it. They're not reading any version. You know, and it reminds me of a time when uh, I went up to a guy and I said, hey, man, you know, like, I'm trying to lose weight. Like, what kind of proteins, fat, carb ratio should I be eating every day? And he was like, do you eat McDonald's? And I was like, yeah, sometimes. And he was like, let's start there. And it's so crazy because I think back to it now and it's like I'm worried about macronutrient ratios when I really need to worry about not eating a Big Mac. Most of you are in Big Mac zone when it comes to the Bible. You want to know what version of the Bible you should read? The one you got. That's the version you should read. And that's my question to you, Bridge. Do you read it? Do you even read it? The Bible isn't do this, do that, it's know him. It doesn't just inform, it transforms. When I pushed the Bible away, I did not push away a book, I pushed away my friend. A friend who said, you could push me away, but I'll never push you away. Get to know me. When you actually get to understand Jesus' love for you and how he pursues you, it makes you want to run to the scriptures because that's where you get to learn more about him. Why? Because it's all about him. Your heart will burn for the scriptures when you realize it's all about him and this is your way to connect. The Bible moves from being a jail cell to being a home when you understand it's about Jesus, the same Jesus that got on the cross and thought of you, took your sins on the cross, took your penalty in your place, and wants to be in a relationship with you today. If you don't want a Bible that contradicts you or goes against your way of thinking, you don't want God. You want to be God. The Bible can be trusted. The story of how Jesus comes and saves the whole world has withstood the test of time. It surpasses every single culture, and ultimately it is the door to get to know him personally. Open his book and read it. Open his book and read it. Let's pray. Father, help us to move from seeing your word as a book of to-dos but rather a way to get to know you better. God, this text has Jesus all over it. Help us to fall deeper in love with you and to have burning hearts for the Holy Scriptures. God, help us to take our hands off the steering wheel and allow the Bible's teachings to guide our life. I pray that all of us who have been avoiding your word would feel so convicted and move to consuming its contents from this day forward. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you've been encouraged by this message. We'd love to hear how God used this sermon to speak to you. Please take a minute to email us your story. Our email address is info at bridgechurchnyc.com. And you can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram 
by using at BridgeChurchNYC or visit our website, BridgeChurchNYC.com. Thanks again for listening to this week's message.